Shar here, and welcome to the Blonde and Strong podcast. This is a podcast of strength and empowerment with each episode dedicated to helping our listeners improve their health, well-being, to learn, grow, and unlock their strength from the inside out. I felt called to create this podcast to give a platform to inspirational guests to share their knowledge, experience, strength, and hope in order to empower others to prove it's possible not only to survive, but to thrive. So this is done through open, honest, and filtered conversations, a safe space for people to be raw and powerful through their vulnerability without shame or judgment, where no topic is off limits as long as it has the intention of empowering our listeners. Our growth is our own responsibility. No one can do the work for us, but I truly believe that we're stronger together. So sit back, relax. We're about to dive in deep, so come dive in deep with us. Thank you for taking the time to listen. So today on the podcast, we are honored and privileged to have with us Nick Dunn, who is uh, an ex-paratrooper and author of Surviving Hell. So welcome, Nick. Thank you for having me on your show, Sha. No, thank you for being on. I genuinely, I've been so excited about this interview. Like, I've actually been nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually been nervous because you have an incredible story and I wanted to do it justice. I wanted to do you justice, really. So um, I, I just want to thank you for being willing to come on and talk with us today. Just to kind of start everything off, I want to do with you what I do with everybody and we do a quick fire round of this or that. No problem. Just so that everyone can kind of get to know you a little bit better before we start into like the juicy stuff, okay? No problem. Right. Ready? Okay. Yeah. Dogs or cats? Cats. Phone call or text? Phone call. Beach or mountains? Mountains. Coffee or tea? Tea. Winter or summer? Summer. Connection or isolation? Both. Bath or shower? Bath. Like, do you prefer IQ, like actual intelligence or emotional intelligence? Emotional intelligence. Love or money? Love. Depth or width? Width. Would you rather be right or happy? Happy. Oh, yay. Well, thank you for playing. Great answer. <laughs> for people that don't know, Nick wrote a book called Surviving Hell, which I have. I know for you just listening on audio, you won't be able to see it, but I have a signed copy of it here. Um, I have read it. It is incredible. It's, a, it's an unbelievable story. As I read the story, knowing it's a true story and it's your story, I was always very mindful of that. But as I read it, I almost felt like I was reading a fiction book, you know, like something that... Um, you just basically read a book and you think, I know it's a real life story, but you could, how, the, how on earth could that have happened in a real life situation? It, it's yeah. too good to be true. But then at the same time, it's so 
ridiculous and so crazy what happens. No one could make it up. You can't. You couldn't make it up. You know when so people say, <laughs> you, "You could write that." I let me have. Yeah, that's <laughs> what it's like. Uh, so reading the book, I mean, it it was great because I got a good feel. I thought of who you were. So like actually when we've sat down to talk, I actually mm -hmm. felt like I kind of knew you already. So I got a really good feel for who you were. It, it's an incredible story. For those um, that have seen it um, on the news from years ago, um, Nick was one of the Chennai six uh, who spent over four years stuck in India, either uh, in Indian prisons or um, on bail and unable to leave the country um, after being falsely accused um, and, and not even charged for, for years after being there, right? Um, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. basically <laughs> it was just uh, a massive political legal nightmare. Um, it so, should never have happened, but it unfortunately did. So looking back, uh, obviously, just for the listeners to kind of talk people through, because not everyone will be familiar with your story, even though it oh, was yeah, yeah. on the national press, like it was in the national news. Um, so I think a lot of people will be. Um, but for those who aren't, um, so you uh, are an ex-paratrooper and you were in the one para regiment, right? Which for those yeah, who was... don't know the difference between the different um actual regiments the one para regiment is the one that supports the special forces so right so you went from uh being a paratrooper coming out of the army and going into uh security and close protection right yes yes um i left the army um and then i pursued private security whether it be on land uh, say like in Afghanistan or Iraq uh, or maritime which is protecting uh, client vessels um, in the high-risk area uh, preventing uh, the crew and cargo to be hijacked by Somali pirates um, so that was what I was doing um, and I was enjoying it going to different countries around the world meeting uh, some fantastic crew from different nationalities and I did it I was doing it because I, I, I've always been in a kind of role where I'm protecting of sorts and I felt this was something that I enjoyed doing and 2013 um, we were up ceased operations and were off the coast of India and we were awaiting fuel and provisions and we kind of went to sleep on the 11th of October 2013 and then woke up early in the morning um, being told we've now been boarded by the Coast Guard at gunpoint and we are being escorted to the port of Tutakarin for inquiry of some sort and we were just told to just keep out the way if you need to be spoken to uh, we'll call for you but there's no point having too many uh, people milling around it's best to just keep out the way and let the, the higher authorities that on the ship 
like the captain and the tactical deployment officer who was in charge of all the security deal with the 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 coast guard and the police and different organizations that were awaiting us at uh, the port um so we kind of really kept in the dark for a few days and it was a sight to be seen when entering that port because we had such a massive welcome committee must have been over 50 people the media and i'm thinking this is quite strange but you you don't think of anything else you just oh well it's india isn't it they're they're, they're quite inquisitive kind of people um, and i've seen that on the vessels when you're going up the coast of india you'll see fishing dows going to these big vessels and just want to look at them and you know they're just inquisitive they're not posing any threat or anything like that so we didn't actually think of anything and then obviously as the days go by more questioning and questioning and different organizations leaving um you've got the local police organization um called q branch and they kind of just were not happy at all these other organizations going well we've showed them they've showed us the weapons they've showed us the paperwork to go with them well we don't see a problem here so the local guys didn't like that because they were now feeling that they were looking at, like a bunch of idiots so they in their wisdom just gone we found weapons they are illegal we're going to put you in prison and they got away with it they literally just took their own law and just went boom enough for that we're going to make these people suffer. We're going to make an example out of these people. We're going to make them suffer tenfold for a crime they've not committed. But we're going to put foisted, foisted charges on these people. We're going to lie to just cause absolute misery. And they did that. And they got away with it. And, you've, and you start to think, what on earth is going on? And then... They threw us in prison and you just your whole world just crumbles away you one minute you're doing your job protecting even indian crew on and i've done that on some of the ships that i worked on to now being portrayed as a terrorist that you may have been up to no good you are selling weapons and having stuff wrote about you in a negative way in their media and your family back in the UK are seeing these clippings online and your family are ringing you saying, I'm reading some awful stuff about you online. Is this true? And I'm on the phone to me dad and my dad's asking me, am I selling weapons? And I'm like, what on earth are these idiots t saying to the media? I've now got to explain my actions to my own dad. And I turned around and I said, Dad, I'm protecting ship and cargo from Somali pirates. I'm not selling weapons. And I'm certainly not going to do a Mumbai-style attack 
on a nuclear power plant as they portrayed in their media as mm-hmm. what we potentially could have been doing. And that, that's quite horrible to having to do. I mean, you know, I can't. I can't even imagine. I think it's really important, like, for people to understand, like, first of all, everything that they were trying to say that you had done that was illegal, like potentially being in Indian waters or having illegal weaponry on board or all these different things that they were trying to actually accuse you of and charge you of, were completely false. All of the weapons were registered and within the legal parameters of use. Like you were not like the navigation system had broken on the ship that you were on. You weren't even really in Indian waters, but there was also a typhoon happening at the same time. Like, so there was all these different things happening. Everything that they were accusing you of wasn't true Mm. you'd been kept on the boat like when they first came on the boat on the 12th of october they kept you on the boat for like five days yeah whilst they were looking so it wasn't even like they just came on had a little look around and let you go and get on about your business they held you there for five days on the boat right yeah yeah the 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 held us we had a we couldn't really uh, uh focus on any other things it was just a massive milling of people bustling around i remember in the room that i uh, was sleeping in with the other guys one of the indian police just kind of came snooping out snooping into it and kind of startled me and i shouted and they scarped away and i'm thinking why are they snooping around this vessel why are these people doing it you know so and then you've got this mass of people like the press and things waiting on the port yeah all these people there also and you're i can only imagine you're in a completely different country obviously um you know the more deprived country how the how everything works out there is completely different to what people are used to here in the uk um however it became more and more apparent why there were all of those people there and why they were taking such an interest in you and the ship, like not just you personally, but the whole crew. So there was like 35 of you all together and why they were trying to make an example out of you by really bringing like throwing the book at you all. And that was because they'd had an incident previous the year previous uh, where someone had actually come in to Indian waters and killed two fishermen illegally and yeah. they got they quote unquote got away with it. So yeah, basically in a, in we, effect, were, we were the fallout guys. We were the fallout guys. Yeah. Um back in I think it was January two thousand and twelve two Italian Marines working for the Italian government doing uh the same role I uh piracy uh with their navy um accidentally killed two indian fishermen off the coast of curla um so i I, i'm going through the the situation in the southeast coast for those who don't geographically know about india curla is on the southwest coast 
and that's different state, different incident that's got no relevance into what's happening with us. The only similarity is they were doing anti-piracy role for their government. We were doing it as a private contractor. So they've so if anything happens to them, they've got their government as a backup. Yeah. If anything goes wrong with us, we've got no one. No one. And I've just had a a new load of books turn up there at the post. So yeah. that's <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. That's perfect timing. <laughs> perfect timing. I've just received a parcel of more books. But amazing. um yeah, uh Four, four year nightmare starting in October 2013. So from there, they've taken all 35 of you, right? They've taken you to a bit of a holding prison while they're processing everything. And yeah. there's a whole big mix of you. So there's some, there's six of you all together that are British, right? And then people- There from was four, 14 Estonian, three Ukrainian and 12, 10 or 12 Indians. Uh, if I recall. So the first prison we were taken to um, was built by British and obviously when they realised there was British guys coming to their prison they were laughing and joking and more or less saying the shoe's on the other foot now because um, the part of India where I were still can't comprehend that we Britain used to rule India they are quite anti-British down there in Tamil Nadu, um, which makes our freedom struggle a little bit more tastier in their eyes. Um, so, so they can ho hold that against us. But the first prison that we're in was awful. Good job, we were only there for a couple of days. Unfortunately, the Indians, they stayed there. Um, and I remember when we got bail in April, so we, we all went to prison in the October. Um, the first ever prison in Palamcourty, the Indians stayed there. And then a couple of days later, uh, 23 uh, of the foreigners in their eyes went up to Puzal in Chennai and did uh, prison time there uh, till we got bail in April 2014. So we spent our first Christmas and New Year in a prison and um, one of the guys had his uh, girlfriend and dad and I think his brother came over and I remember when we were in prison and the embassy are given any letters from our families etc and I, I, I'm not too sure but I believe he was kept to the side and then obviously when he came back to the cell, it was, oh, I've been told my family's coming over. Um, so le leading up to Christmas, that happened to me. So I'm sat there on my own in, in the jailer's office with the embassy girls, beaming like a Cheshire cat, thinking I'm getting a visit to come and see us before Christmas. And then my smile just was ripped away. And it wasn't my family was coming to see us. I was told some very upsetting news. And it was that my mum had uh, suffered a double aneurysm five days before Christmas. And she's lying, fighting for her life in a hospital bed. 
I'm 5,000 miles away in an Indian prison with no charges fighting for freedom. So I have two battles happening on two parts of the world and I'm getting a letter off the embassy wrote by my sister telling us that your mum's okay not to be too worried and it just feels like my whole world's just crumbled away. I feel helpless, useless and then as I left to walk nearly a mile from the jailer's office back to our compound where we were staying in the prison I kind of went into a shell, tunnel vision, I was battling the red mist, I didn't want the anger to take over, I remember Indians throwing stones at us, hurling abuse, um, and then I got the cop back to the compound and I saw one of the Brit guys and I just broke down and we went for a, a little walk in the compound and I remember telling them that I can't do this. I can't do this. You know, my life's ruined. You know, all I could think of was my mum in prison and prison during them six months was hard. Um, it was hard on what all. Um, we had a few laughs. Being ex-military, we were always laugh in the face of adversity. And uh, you, we did have a few laughs where we'd write jokes and draw little silly pictures and then throw it to the next cell and they would respond and do the same. And, we ha you know, we had, we had a few fun times because in a bad situation, you've got to try and see the light in some sort of way. And I remember we're all getting D and V and that was horrible. It spread like wildfire. Everyone was ill. I remember going to the outside toilet because we only used the, the cell toilet, well, a hole in the floor, if you want to be more uh, precise. And that was our toilet. Um, so we'd only use that once we're locked in the cell for the night. So we'd use the outside ones during the day. And I remember going to the toilet, I was like, I, I need to go to the toilet. And I remember walking and I just puked up. And then obviously the rest happened the other way. So I'm stood there and I'm crying and I'm crying for me, mom. I'm like, I'm gonna die in this shit hole. Uh, so I'm kind of crying and laughing at the same time. I've just shit myself, I've just been sick. I'm in an Indian prison. My mum's in a hospital bed, my head's a mess. And I was just, all I could think of was, am I gonna die in this place? And I was just like, what on earth is going on here? Um, but we all recovered, um, fortunately. But um, that was a, a, a weird thing to go through. It was just horrendous because if anything major was to happen, you'd probably die in that prison to be, to be fair, it's not like our prison systems, whether you're in the UK or in the States where you've got some sort of medical care. They do not care in them prisons. You're just a number, simple as that. I mean, just hearing you talk, obviously I've read the book, you know, I, I'm 
I love hearing you tell the story because I feel like it gives you even more insight. Like I can, oh, I can actually like feel it, like how that helplessness, you know, I, I've never been to India. I have an Indian name. I <laughs> like, I, you know, I, I meditate, I do yoga. I, I have, I love it, but I have no desire to go to India because I feel like even the nice places are quite grimy just from like just a hygiene perspective it's just a different culture it's a different environment it's one that i think i would struggle to be in um and that would not be in a prison that would just be like as normal so bearing in mind you're there in a capacity you're in a prison um being falsely accused of something there's actually no reason for you to be there but you have zero control over that situation and and not only are you dealing with the um difficulties of the environment because i can only imagine the conditions of oh, a yeah, south yeah. indian prison it must have been absolutely disgusting i'm pretty well, yeah sleeping yeah, in squalor definitely. on the floor with rats and god knows what else and obviously i've got me little rat rat incident, you a little rat incident? Yeah. did you name it did you ever name the rat i feel like you no, but uh it it kind of <laughs> wow <laughs> do you know what i envisaged when i being was face, face being face to face with that um shit elf honestly not for the first time the, 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 yeah <laughs> not for the first the rats over there were the size of cats oh god massive so um, not only are you dealing with the loss of your freedom but the absolute like travesty of the environment around you the, the heat it was just unbearable at times you've got zero control over your own life in that moment then you get this horrific news about your mother and i know it in the book it it really comes across how close you are with your family your sister your mom what a great support you know that especially your sister was for you in your time out there um so to get that devastating news really when you've only been in there for not even a couple of months um you have no idea what's going on. that feeling of being powerless having no control being completely helpless and in that kind of an environment where i know i'm sure you've had to build um bonds with the men that were were there going through a similar thing with you mm. but how how did you cope mentally like i can only imagine your paratraining that mindset of being ready for anything will have set you in good stead for that but what did you have to do on a daily basis to be able to cope with everything that was being thrown at you from all different directions um well yeah uh my military training was definitely a massive mental help um, I do believe if I didn't have that, I would have sulked and, and cried for mommy in the corner. And I did that anyways at times when obviously things got a bit uh, too much at times. Um, 
I'm just a human. I've got emotions. I'm not a robot. Um, but how I dealt with it mentally, I just had to fo make sure we all were more positive. Um, there was quite a lot of negativity, and I don't blame those who were negative. I absolutely do not. Um, but I always saw the light at the end of the tunnel, and I always tried my best to make sure, uh, as a group, we were more positively uh, mentally thinking than to give up hope. I never gave up hope. I always knew one day I would leave India and come home to, to my family. I just didn't know when. And if I had to go the, the, the full duration, I was mentally prepared for that. It would have taken me to the next levels and levels beyond in my mental boundaries. Um, but you've got to adapt and overcome and you've got to uh, go beyond what you normally do in your everyday life. I was thrown, in, like I say, in an Indian prison 5,000 miles away from home, a different way of life, a different code. I had to deal with it. I had to mentally say to myself, this isn't going to be forever there will be an end game. This is just the now. It's not going to be the future. And it, it, to try and like, explain it it, it, it can be a little bit difficult. You, you had to live it with it. You had to be there. Because when people said to me, Nick, I couldn't have done that, what you've done, my response when people have ever said that to me is, you wouldn't know unless you had to deal with it. You do not know what you are mentally capable of doing till you are faced in a difficult situation. And I know I suffered. The other guys, they suffered. We all suffered. Some dealt with how they dealt with it in their way, and I dealt with it in how I dealt with it. We're never, I can't turn around and say, well, you should deal with it in a different way. If that's their way of dealing with their situation and their coping measurements, then fair enough. I hope it works for you. But I have to do what I've got to do for me to get from day one to the next. Simple as that. And I just had to just think of my family, not think of the bad things that happened with me mum, even though it was at times very difficult on not thinking that because I'm helpless. I want to be at my mum's side, whether it be in hospital or back home. I want to be there. I don't want to be in an Indian prison. I want to be home with my family, but I can't because I'm stuck in an illegal nightmare and I have to deal with my situation first because if I'm okay my family's going to be okay if I'm not okay my family's not going to be okay yeah if my sister reads my letters and reads the, my letters to me mom and I'm not happy I will be writing in my letters I'm not happy I'm struggling my sister can't read that to my mom because my mom's then going to feel weaker mentally. 
and it's going to take longer for her recovery. So if I stay happy as best as I can and show my sister that I'm coping mentally and physically, my sister then can read these letters to me mom and hopefully my mom can take some sort of positive attitude and help her recover. Yeah, gives her a little bit of peace of mind. I mean, that's really beautiful, Nick. And I think it, there is that like where you were able to give them some hope and with your words and your letters and they were able to do the same for you. It was a real like um, passing of the torch back and forth, wasn't it? Like they could write to you yeah. and that would uplift you and lift your spirits. And then you were able to do the same for them. And it's great that you had that family uh, support there and trying to, I understand what you're saying about like, it's almost difficult to even put into words and human beings are so adaptive. It's, it's what makes us different to other animals, you know, like the, our ability to adapt and overcome is what makes us so successful as a species. But mm with everything that you went through and like bearing in mind, you'd already been a paratrooper. You'd already been in numerous war zones. You'd already gone through horrific things in the war, like being blown up, seeing people die. Like this was, you know, you weren't a stranger to difficult environments, stressful situations. Were you surprised by your own ability like to even go up to another level of resilience and mental strength to be able to endure like what you went through uh obviously at the time i don't i wasn't thinking that way but when i talk about it nowadays and reflect back yeah i i, I definitely went through some mental uh challenges i knocked down a few walls and obviously I've got like me military mental uh, level and then I had to take it a lot higher to deal with what I went through because military it's physical you've got to be robust and there is a bit of men mental uh, strength in there but a lot of it is physical I was in a situation where it was just mental. And if you lose what's going on in your head, it will send you in a spiral of negativity. And it, so, it sounds like you had to do that by taking every day as it came, like step by yeah. step, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day with the pure uncertainty, because bearing in mind, you were in prison when you first got there for six months, but you still yeah. had no idea. Absolutely no idea. They were going to go to trial, how long they were going to hold you there for, how long their legal process was going to take, whether someone from, you know, the, the UK uh, government was going to be able to come in and assist you. So like you had all this uncertainty, you had no idea when any of it was really going to come to an end. So there must no, have been a I had, had no idea. No idea. Every, every day was just sometimes Groundhog Day. Um, but 
you couldn't go, well, well, we'll see what ne happens next week. Obviously, when we had dates going through the courts, then you can go, right, it's on like Donkey Kong next Wednesday, we're in, we've got a court date, etc. But other than that, it was just every day as it comes, every day a new challenge mentally, right? You can't go, well, that was yesterday, I'll do that today. No, it was, that was yesterday, let's put that aside, let's deal with what today, because yesterday the, the vegetables might have been good, today they're absolutely disgusting, and you're like, well, how the hell are we supposed to feed our people? We're, on, we're, we're getting one meal a day as it is, how an earth are you supposed to cook 23 meals? Um, because that's what we did in the first prison. Um, we'll, we'll put ourselves in little cooking teams, so we're cooking as a, for 23 guys. And it's quite difficult. We're not chefs, so sometimes a lot of the food was... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you just had to eat it because that's what you had to live on. And what people um, may not realise is that in this Indian prison, you didn't have, like... Um, a canteen or like um, a place that everyone went and sat down to eat. Um, you had to go and cook for yourself using whatever ingredients they had in the kitchen that day. Yeah, yeah. So we would get, say, a daily allowance of uh, vegetables and uh, and bits of bit, bit of chicken, and we did eventually get to chicken thighs we never had chicken breasts obviously why would they give a prisoner a lovely chicken breast unless you come to a, a british prison of course um <laughs> but we sometimes had to fight to and take the vegetables down to the jail and say are you taking the mick here how on earth are we supposed to cook with these vegetables and then sometimes it was we'll be telling our embassy look what there was, you know, d days where we'd be fighting in the uh, kitchen for a, a stove to cook on and a pot to, to cook our food in. Um, majority of the meals that we ate were stew for, for the ingredients that we got. Onions, tomatoes, potatoes, uh, carrots, uh, cabbage. Uh, I'm not a chef. I can't create a, a, a massive a luxury meal out of that. We, we, we've got to do what we've got to do. And um, a stew seems to be the, the easiest way of bulking a meal to feed a, a large group of guys. So that's what we were doing um, for our time in the first prison. And we lost quite a substantial amount of weight I lost 10 kilograms um, unhealthily. So I'm looking, we all looked a bit withdrawn when we got eventually bail in uh, April, but there was, it was, it was a struggle um, at times, like I say, that's how with the, the, the weight loss and just the environment, how we got D and V as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're lucky, I, I would say, like, not lucky, but I suppose it's, it is lucky that no one got sicker than what you did because just being in that kind of environment must have been uh, awful. But obviously, if, in the second prison, someone, you know, did get uh, a lot 
ill, and that would uh, change the course of the outcome. Um, well, let's fast forward then. So you've been in the first prison. Well, it was like your second prison, really, wasn't it? You've been in there for six months, and you get bail. And yeah. you, it's now April 2014, right? And yeah. you've given bail, and you actually spend the next 18 months yeah. on bail in Chennai, having so, to spend for yourself, basically. So, yeah, so... We spent a few months in bail going to the police station twice a day just to make sure that we weren't escaping. Not that we would, anyways. We didn't have a bloody passport. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we were, we were, I was living on uh, charity money, family money, handouts from friends just to put a roof over my head. I, I was, yeah, the, the company that I worked for put me up in a hotel for a, a short uh, length of time, but they couldn't sustain it. Well, they could have, but they refused to sustain it. So we had to fend for ourselves, which is, became a financial burden on my family. Um, I wasn't living in a luxurious place. I was living in a hostel. But when you live there every day for weeks and months and years, it, mount, it mounts up. Um, so from April to July, we were signing bail. July, the case was quashed. I was technically a free man. And then we had to play the waiting game of 90 days. So another three months. So I'm a free man living in India. And, and I'm like, well, why, why is this happening? So we're speaking with the government saying, what, what's going on? Because the, the police have a 90-day window to appeal no, the, high, the High Court's judgment at the Supreme Court in New Delhi. And, and we're just living each day as a, is it over yet? Is it over? Is it over? And then it's getting near the 90 days and you, you, you're getting your, your stuff all packed and you're going, we're going home. We're going home, and then on day 88, they go, bang, put the paperwork into the Supreme Court and appealed, and it gets accepted, and our life just goes, boom. So we're about to hit a milestone. If they hadn't put an appeal in from 90 days, that was it. It was over. Get me on a plane. Get me back to the UK. Two days Two days to spare, they put that paperwork in and destroyed 23 man's lives. It was absolutely disgusting. And it's something that I will never forget. And we have to now go through another legal uh, challenge again. And it was just a nightmare. Um, so you're constantly living in India, wondering when day, these court days in the Supreme Court are, are going to happen. And Supreme Court is a very busy court, so your case isn't going to get heard straight away. And eventually it got heard, I think, uh, the following year or before Christmas. can't remember now. It was just... Every day was just an anxious wait. 
and then uh, we're in court, obviously not personally, but we're, we're legal teams in court and you've got the prosecution. We became a split faction. So uh, the, yes, the, the non-British guys uh, got their own lawyer mm -hmm. and we had our lawyer and their lawyer was more of a senior lawyer than ours. So they stood up in court before. They said, well, the judge gave them a simple question. What was the vessel doing there? And if he just turned around and went, the vessel, Your Honor, was there because we needed fuel and provisions. The judge would have gone, cheers, mate. Boom, ended. But he didn't. He turned around and went, I don't know why the vessel was there. I'm just here to get these guys free because they were just passengers. They had no involvement. They didn't know what, where, what was happening. And the judge stopped listening to all that rambling on. He just cared about, I don't know why the vessel was there. So our lawyer didn't even, it was pointless getting to stand up because the police are turning around saying they're up to no good. You don't even know why the vessel was there. And we're turning around saying, well, we're here for fuel and provisions. So the judge is going, who do I believe Sorry, here? Yeah. We've got three, I've got three different stories here. Who do I believe? Let's have a trial. And we're going, oh, no. Like, bearing in mind, this is all being done in a completely different language where you yeah. don't really even have interpreters there to help you know what's even being said and yeah, exactly. you were on bail for all of that time like for 18 months you can more or less say we're on country house arrest yeah basically we we're unable to leave the country even though in their law before they put the paperwork in indian law in that situation you do not require to stay in that country we showed this paperwork to our British government and they turned around and gave us a simple answer in, we'll see what the police do if they appeal or not. So I think it's important for listeners to understand, like my, one of my biggest questions, which I know there's really no answer to because we'll never fully know the answer, but like the British government, where were they? throughout this whole time but i think what it's important for people to know is that under british law that they don't get involved until you've actually been tried and prosecuted right until you've been found guilty. so until you've been found guilty they cannot get involved under their law and by the time you got to that point within your ordeal it started in october 2013 and you were tried in january 2016 so you were already two and a half years in. Exactly. And then, and so, so in January 2016, when we got convicted for five years, we'd already done two and a bit years. So if I had done my whole five year sentence, which I can be grateful I'm now home because I'd still be serving my five year sentence at this current day. That's and crazy. That would be net seven, over seven years of my life gone. 
gone, gone. You know, it's crazy. But what I will say is, what I will say is, edit, stop recording now, edit, because my battery's going to go low and I'm, I'm having a technical issue. Sorry. That's all right. So, so two minutes, I need to get me charger. No, don't worry about it. I can <laughs> edit it all out. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. no problem. I'll, I'll be two seconds. That works out well. I'm just going to let Yeah, no problem. So sorry about that. No, don't be. My um, my daughter was like, because she's gone out with my dog, and she's because she's like, oh, I'll go out while you're doing your while you're recording your podcast, and um, she's like, are you done yet? I'm like, no, just come in and edit that bit out. <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to have it balanced. It's the joys of uh iMovie, we can actually like edit. Right, there we go. Is that a bit better? Is that okay? Yeah, it's perfect. Champion. Yeah, it's absolutely got fine. Me little got me a little battery pack. I love it. Right, so um, where where did I finish the game? So, you were just saying that actually, um, if you'd have been sentenced, and it oh, was, yes, yes, and you'd have yes. been given the five years, and you'd have had to serve that time out. You'd still be there now. Yeah. So, take the the two and a half years prior to me getting sentenced to five years. That basically wouldn't come off my sentence. So, I'd still in this crazy twenty twenty year we are going through. I'd still be serving my five years if we never won our appeal. That's madness. Imagine going through the whole, because India are really going through a lot of uh, struggles during the with this coronavirus. Imagine me being in a prison, in a prison during this. Imagine how my family would be going on, knowing they couldn't come to see us. I, my, I don't even know if my embassy would have been allowed to come and see us. We would have plummeted mentally 
Some, I don't even know if they would have been able to recover. They would have slipped in that, uh, down the, the rabbit hole too far, and I don't think they might have recovered. Um, but I'm not saying other people are, uh, are weak or strong, just we all have different coping methods. I can't say I would have fared off any better. I could have, I am not Mr. Mr. Resilience, definitely not. I, 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 I went through my struggles and I've overcome them, but I still go through my little struggles today as, a, as what I've gone through in the past. Yeah. But I can't even begin to think about, imagine what 2020 would have been like for me being in a, if I was still in a prison. I, to be honest, I can't turn around and say that I would have been a lot happier. Definitely. I think I would have really, really mentally struggled. Um, I even went a, a day um, where I went a full month without even receiving a letter. And I broke down in front of uh, my embassy staff because my sister, it was no fault of hers. I gave her a, a little bit of a telling off when I saw her, but she kind of didn't want to send, send a, a, a letter to me because she wanted to surprise me in prison. And it wasn't until the embassy came in to see me and I was nearly bubbling and crying in front of them because I received no letters of morale. And, and they basically said, Nick, sorry, we're told by your sister, she's, she's coming to see you and we didn't want to uh, tell you anything. I said, don't ever do that to me again because <laughs> letters of communication in that situation is what gets me through day to day. And from not hearing my, anything from my family for nearly one month killed us no. mentally. So my sister kind of got a little bit of a telling off. However, when she brought a massive alcohol-laced chocolate cake in for me because I spent three birthdays and three Christmases in prison. Oh, so I celebrated my 30th birthday. So I, I was 27 when all this happened. I'm 34 now. And I spent my 28th birthday. I spent my 30th birthday and I spent my 31st birthday all in a prison. And that was the only times I saw my family on my birthday. I saw my sister three times whilst I was uh, in prison and all on my birthday and I saw my dad the once um, and that was prior to me getting out in uh, December but I uh, sorry in November but like it's mad when if I think back at what could have happened differently imagine if we never won our appeal and I was still in prison now, imagine that. But I only think of it as, a, as something small because it's never happened never and, it, happened. and it, it was never going to happen. I was confident in my legal team that we would have gotten out. Obviously, it unfortunately helped. We were, we were kind of helped on by uh, someone having ill health. Um, and I hope he's making a full recovery uh, from that. But I do believe we would have gotten out just 
we might have spent another Christmas in prison. But I, I was confident we would have gotten out. So you, made... you had, they'd sentenced you to the five years in January 2016. And by this time, you'd, you'd already served another, what, 18 months, two years of that. Yeah. Another 18 months of, um, of that five-year sentence when one of the other men that were um, in the prison with you started to deteriorate and they were getting sicker and sicker. And yeah. at that point, you knew that there was an appeal going on for your release. And it was stuck on hold because they were very reluctant on making a decision. So our legal team created a, a red heron and they focused on putting a case through the court to get the captain who, were, who was unfortunately suffering with bone cancer mm -hmm. to go out in, into a, a private hospital to basically die and have his family come from the Ukraine. So we had to go through the courts to try and give him and his family uh, them wishes. And it went through the lower court, passed to the high court, and it, it went up to Supreme Court. And we're in the high court waiting on a decision for nearly one year. So during the first year of our five-year sentence in prison, we put our appeal paperwork in. And then it was all done and dusted on the November, and then we spent the Christmas and New Year in prison. And then as the months went by, when you... We knew it was going to take time, but then the months went by and I celebrated another birthday in March and I needed that lift. Because um, when, when I was out of prison for that like 18 months, um, I couldn't speak to my mum just willy-nilly. I had to use Skype and that had to be when my sister finished work. So... With the time difference, four hours and then five, four and a half hours and then five and a half hours when the times change. Mm -hmm. I, it, it's nearly like two o'clock in the morning, India time, for me speaking with my family. And it, it's a, it was quite hard. So I was always on the phone and Skyping my dad. So my dad kind of stood up a bit and me and my dad, built a, a stronger bond and a father-son relationship, um, which I'm still having that today, but I've got my mum and my dad to sh equally share the, the love. But my dad kind of, I'd, I'd sometimes Skype and speak to him nearly five times a day because I generally missed my dad and I missed my family and it was more of a reassurance and um, we, I was feeling down in the dumps. I was telling my sister, I was like, my dad's in his 70s. His health could deteriorate. We've been sentenced to five years. And as you can see, they are very reluctant on doing a decision here. Uh, they could carry on the way they're going for another four, four years. I need to see my dad. And I was writing this to my sister, and my sister went, I can't bring him. You know what he's like. My dad's not very PC. And he's in his 70s. The heat would have killed him. But he came out. And I was, we, we built a, a homemade 
Flintstone style gym in our compound um, as, a, as a way of mentally dealing with the day and just breaking out your day. So I'll be like reading books and doing stuff, going for a little run and doing fitness. And uh, it was the day before me, but me 31st birthday. I'm, I'm, it's early afternoon. I'm in the compound training in my Flintstone gym. And then I get told I've got a parcel, but I've got to go down to the jailer's office and sign for it. And I'm like, I'll get it at four o'clock. And he went, no, you've got to go and get it now. And I was like, I hate being disturbed when I'm, I'm training. <laughs> uh, and I, I put my top on and I'm strutting down to the jailers. And one of the Brit guys there, and he's like, massive parcel. You've got a massive parcel. And I was like, what have I told my sister not to send massive parcels? Because it will be via courier. And what they do is they try and get extra money off you for the courier. Because we have like a prison account where we could buy essentials like toothpaste and biscuits. And, and we had a, a prison charity called Prisoners Abroad, which every so many months would put a bit of money into our account. And my family could give money to the MC and they can put money in. Um, so I was I was really annoyed because I was I, I, my sister sent a parcel previously and it cost us four thousand rupees, nearly four pound, just to get a parcel, which the items didn't come up to forty pound in the parcel. I was absolutely raging, so I was just having another flashback. So I went into the jailer's office and I and I went. Jailer, there's no bloody parcel here. And then my sister jumps out from behind the, the, the table and I just freeze like that. I just freeze. And I think my tears freezed at the same time because I, I was stuck. I couldn't move and she came round and gave us a cuddle. And, and anyone who's been in India, especially obviously prison, uh, prison they the don't like the touchy-feely, male and female, they don't like it. So... I was constantly getting tapped on the shoulder and I was like, get off. I was thinking it was one of the other prison uh, guards saying, Tap, you can't do that. Adeline, yeah. Yeah. And then I literally got grabbed by the shoulders and spun round. Good job I didn't react in a bad way <laughs> because I literally got spun round and my dad was there. He was hiding behind the door. And I yes. honestly... Me, me heart just broke, but my spirits went tenfold. I was feeling down in the dumps because we're, we're stuck in limbo and I've just been given that vital mental assistance. I was given hope. I was given happiness by seeing my family the day before my birthday because they got to India early and the embassy went oh by the way uh, we'll get you in the prison the day if, you, if you're not too tired and they went yeah we'll go so yeah. me, me, my, me dad and me sister got an extra visit oh. to see us because it's a long it's a long haul 10 hour flight and all the connections on top of that from the UK to India it is a, it's a long journey and uh, 
you will be feeling a bit tired, but to feel tired and to see me, well, you're not going to go, oh, well, we'll see him on his birthday tomorrow. If you've got time to see me, you're going to go and come and see me, and that's what they've done, and it was truly amazing. So there was a much-needed uh, rise in mental assistance that my dad came out with my sister uh, for my birthday. And I can only imagine... Um what kind of impact that has just on your morale um the oh, it, it raised my morale tenfold but how important was it you know like what we haven't even touched on is how much your family was doing back home to raise awareness to get support to raise money um to to do whatever they could to try uh you know the the petitioning um, being in contact with the local MPs, trying to uh, speak to the Home Office, uh, uh, and you know, really oh, so much. So, so how much. important was it to you while you were out there? What kind of impact did it have to have that communication with them when you got the letters, when they came out to see you? Do you think you could have coped without all of that? No, if I didn't have any of that, it would have took me to a whole, whole new level. Absolute. It would either have made me or broke me. And I'm quite fortunate I had the support of my family, the support of many amazing people around the world. I was receiving letters from Canada, America, France, Australia, many places in the UK. And it was truly, truly amazing because if it wasn't for my sister raising awareness, obviously other families uh, did their part as well. But my sister, it wasn't for personal gain. She wanted to highlight the injustice that we are being served in not just in our country, but around the world. She wanted everyone in the world to look at India and go, how wrong in what they're doing. Especially when the UK and India, as former prime minister said, when we were in India, the relationship between the UK and India is a blossoming relationship. And David Cameron said that, and we saw it on the news and read it in the newspapers. And I was thinking, a blossoming relationship. <laughs> clearly, clearly. Yeah. While we're languishing in an Indian prison, it's clearly blossoming the relationship. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a lot of history there, isn't there, and all of that. Oh, definitely, definitely. And, but um, your sister did, was it the Great Northern Run that she did? Yeah, she did, she did, the, she, she did the Great North Run. Um, her and my brother and uh, my sister's friend would, they had help, had a, had a Facebook page at the time called Help Nick Home. So they would have that printed on their vests. And when they're running around, my sister would say in, in their letters, 
everyone was shouting, go Nick, go Nick, go Nick, because all they had was Nick wrote on us on the on the vests, go Nick, and they were raising awareness and and it was such and it got basically noticed by the the organizer of the Great North Run and there was one time uh, in prison, my sister was telling us that I'm just not doing it. I, I, I can't, I'm, I'm picking up little niggles and injuries and I don't, I, I'm thinking about sacking it this year and I don't think I'll be able to run. And in our prison, um, if you go on Google Maps and type in Central Prison Puzzle 1, and look at the actual prison, you'll be able to see where there's like the amphitheater and there's like the, the compounds around it and there's like just a circle and a little apex. Well, we used to run around that and we kind of, a couple of the guys kind of worked out how many meters it was. And I think it was like just under 400 meters all the way around. And then we kind of, we would run around it so I would do a couple of laps and get me, me training back up. Because um, I've always did a bit of running, like when I was younger in school and all that. So running is uh, okay for me. Um, I should do it a bit more often nowadays, <laughs> but my lifestyle is a bit different with the gym and all that. So... Um, I kind of, we kind of worked it out, and we and I was kept giving my sister pep talks, saying, "Don't give in. You know, you've got to take these little niggles, and you've got to power on through." And I was giving my sister a pep talk as best as I could, saying, "Right, I'll do. I'll make it a deal. On the day of the Great North Run, I will run it in prison." I will work out 13.1 miles or as close to is possible, which I think it was about 27 laps. So I had to run around 27 times. I'd only run to 15 and I was dead. So trying to run in 30 degree heat. So on the day of the, so on, so on the day of the race, we, the, unlocked our cell at six o'clock in the morning. So I had one of the guys I was running around with us because he was good with his long distance. So he would help pace me um, because I've never done more than 15 laps and I'm, and I'm supposed to run 27. And I'm like, how on earth am I supposed to do that? I'm nearly dying it after 15 laps and I've got to push through another physical and mental boundary. Yeah, but you passed the company, so you can do yeah, it. Exactly. <laughs> um, and I made my sister a promise. And I'm a man that only makes promises if I know I can keep it. So we got we we the night before we went to the prison, got some oranges, cut them up. So do a couple of laps, quick water, chuck an orange in my face power on through. So while my sister's asleep, getting ready, mentally ready for her 13.1 mile half marathon, I'm running around in prison, around a track 27 times in 30 degree heat. I bet they thought you were mad. 
They did. Um, on that day, the actual director of prisons came into prison and was walking around, and he came to us and he went, "Why is he running around?" And he and our guy says, "Oh, his sister back in the UK is uh, running a half marathon in aid of us. He's wanting to return the favour by doing it in prison." So when my sister woke up to go and do the Great North Run, she had already known I had done it. Um, because obviously I used the prison phones to speak to uh, my ex-girlfriend who was Indian, who I met over there during my time between lock, uh, being locked up. She passed the message on to my sister saying he's done He's run around 27 times. He's done it for you. What that spurred, that spurred my sister on to do hers. So she, she went through the boundary in her own little mental health because she was having problems with her ankle. And she was like, I'm not letting my brother down. My brother's just run a, a half marathon in 30 degree heat in an Indian prison. And I'm gonna whinge on about a sore ankle doing a half marathon where there's amazing support, people egging you on. Going, come on, come on. Chucking jelly babies in your face, giving you bottles, <laughs> bottles of water. How can I let my brother down? So I spurred her on and she she ran the marathon and she, it was a tough one for her, but knowing that I'd done it in prison, it really spurred her on. And you, you, you've got to do little challenges in life. Uh, and she was ready to throw the towel in and I was having none of it. I mean, I love that story. I think for me, that's like one of the loveliest things. And I love the fact that even though you were going through all of this um, horrendous experience and you were stuck in, in India with all of this uncertainty and all these things going on, you actually found, you know, love and, and were able to find some really uh, beautiful moments in a really difficult situation. And I can only imagine that helped loads to, to, to help get you through. Um, you know, what you went through was a huge traumatic event People who go through traumas, very often they can be something that happened in a split second and then they're over and they have to then go away and deal with that. There's other people where those traumas are repetitive and, and they happen again and again and again and they can have like longer lasting effects. What you went through was a, trauma, a traumatic experience that was kind of endured over quite a long period of time um, where there was no real escape from that. Um, and obviously you, you managed throughout that time to keep a quote unquote positive mindset where yeah. I'm, I'm all for being optimistic and accepting your current situation exactly as it is and, and having to live and be present in the moment. But I can only imagine that with everything that you were going through, there was a huge element of having to suppress and shove things down. Mm 
to like, I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to deal with that right now. I need to just stay at this level and keep trying to push forward. So what has that impact been on you now that you've come home? Like, obviously you're not in that situation anymore, but I would have presume that there is a level, there's an, an element of a whole grieving and healing process that has to happen once you come back. Oh, most definitely. Um, I was living in a different country, different way of life uh, for four years. Um, it's very busy, noisy, bustly country injuries to the UK and coming back home I was faced with little challenges how to use my washing machine <laughs> I remember putting my first ever load of washing machine and I, I wrote, had to ring my brother on how to uh, use the washing machine <laughs> I was like how, do, how on earth do you use this again um, to have a, a, a a lovely hot bubble bath to just because I hadn't had a bath in four years, uh, showers and stuff like that, and using a bucket whilst in prison at times. Um, getting to grips with things, taking the stuff that we take for granted every day, appreciate them things. Um, Realising that family time is a really special time in your life and you only get one chance of it and i think we have come closer in my situation um i was aware that through my dad's previous marriage he'd had a, a, a son and a daughter and there was one time my sister was telling us that i was on the news and I appear to look like my older, older brother. Uh, and she got in touch with my sister and just, because time, years have gone by, people would potentially forget. But my sister, she didn't forget. And she kind of said, just want to say, I saw your brother on TV and he looks like Gary. Um, your dad is James Dunn, isn't it? And she was like, yeah, you do know I'm your half-sister. And she, my sister was like, yeah. So I've kind of reunited my extended family in my situation. And they were living under our noses in the same town as me. So for me, being in a shitty situation, I brought our family closer together. Um, so I now say this a bit more now and it doesn't matter how big or small the negative is you'll always get a positive out of it it may just be a little positive but you've getting a positive from a negative so you've got to be pretty impressed there you've got to think well it's not all doom and gloom so, so that was one of my questions that I wanted to ask you is as horrific as the experience has been, 
Mm. How has it changed you for the better? And I mean, that's one of, surely that's one of the biggest things is that it's given you access to an even bigger loving family network, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the first thing a few people said to us went, they may have taken your freedom away from your neck. No doubt you will probably have some mental effects you what you have gone through is quite traumatic on a mental scale anyways but by they couldn't get rid of your sense of humor could they i went way yeah either i like me sense of humor or you don't don't you you know <laughs> so I, stripped me of everything took me freedom away from me which i think is the worst thing you can do to a, an innocent human being is take that freedom away um but they could never take me pride, me spirit, and me sense of humor away. I laughed in the face of adversity. I, I made a promise to me family and myself. Me hair may have kept on growing, but when I walked out that prison, my head was held high. Because I walked out that prison, a free man, knowing that you may have beaten me down mentally, but you would never break me. I showed probably a high level of resilience because I so many times wanted to chuck that towel in. I wanted to throw it in. I had endless times on the phone when I wasn't in prison crying on the phone to my dad and my sister saying, I can't do this. I can't do it. I want to come home. I even planned mentally my escape. You know, I... I, I, I put that in my book yeah. because I did. I wanted to escape. I thought, I can't deal with this. I need to get back home. I need to be with me, me mom in her recovery process. I'm an innocent man. I shouldn't be here. Obviously a bit harder to escape when I was in prison, but I showed the I'm not going to give in attitude. And my family in the UK did exactly the same. They never let me suffer. In silence, they made as much noise in a diplomatic way as best as they could. They had many people in my town showing great spirit in a great community. We had the funeral of Jack, Jackie Charlton uh, last week in our, our town uh, where he, he was born. Came out and showed amazing support great community spirit and they showed that for me and I will be very great and I will remain very grateful for the people of Ashington who supported me during my darkest hours and my darkest time and all of our people around the world and in the UK I will be ve I'm very grateful on their support it will I will never forget it and it, I, I am a different person. I am not the same person as I was in 2013. I've gone through the mill. I've gone through a, a massive traumatic scale in how and to overcome adversity, how to adapt to new way of life, new surroundings, coming home and not, and still having the same bond with me mom, but not on speaking terms because me with me mom suffering a double aneurysm 
when I was in India, her, it's affected her speech meant, uh, massively. So for me, back in 2013, making that dreaded phone call saying I'm getting arrested, that was the last ever normal conversation I had with my mum saying I'm getting arrested. I don't know when you'll next say or hear from me, but I love you. For to come home and not be able to have that kind of conversation breaks my heart. It mentally hurts and it will get easier. But what people don't realize is the nature of how it happened. I can't remember that voice. I can't remember hearing my mum speak how she used to be. And it hurts. And I have to deal with that. But every time I go and see my mum, a little face lights up. So it would be in mid-conversations with either my sister, my auntie, a carer's, I walk in. It's like the world stops. My focus is now on my son. So... I've got to be. I've got to be happy, and I've got to be grateful she's still alive. You know. Only imagine seeing. You know, I can only <clears throat> as a mother. I can only imagine that it was that drive and determination of her wanting to see you free again and have you home again that kept her going through her darkest. Oh, definitely. Well, um, I, you know, everything that you've been through, Nick. It's it's got this whole um, three sixty degree like element. You you've got you, your sister, your mom, your dad, all all your extended family, your community, um, the nation. You know, like all these people have been impacted by what you went through, as well. You know, and it's obviously made you a better man it's given you a closer bond to your family although it was a horrific experience that obviously i'm sorry you had to go through and i'm sure you wouldn't wish on anybody but how do you like how what do you see for yourself for your life moving forward like what is next for nick dunn that's a, a very very good question and i've always had my sister asking me that question as well. And she says, you've got to be prepared because people are going to be wanting to know what's next in store. Um, I hate I, that question being asked of me, by the way. So <laughs> it's, it, 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 it's, it's, you know, people can go like, oh, well, I want this to happen. I'm, I'm going to strike. That's all. Um, How do you want, I'll tell you what, here's a slightly different question. Oh, no, no, I'm, I'm willing to answer it. That's no problem. I'm, a, I'm a, a guy who, where you can ask me anything, I'll give you an well, answer. I was going to say, how do you want your life to feel? Never mind, like, um, what's next? How do, how do you want your life to feel moving forward? I want to obviously be happy, personally. Um, I want to know that I'm doing good uh, in life. Uh, I'm not, I'm not trying to preach or anything like that, but for those who have read my book or are interested in reading it, 
um, if you're going through any hardship and struggles in life, um, and if you can take even something so small from what I went through and implement it in their lives and their struggles, and if they can overcome it, then I, if I can help one person, that's great. Because we all go through challenges in our lives and struggles and some people can't see the light at the end of the tunnel and give in. And on, unfortunately, certain people can go beyond that and take their own life. And it, it, it is quite upsetting when you hear people like that who've done that because they feel so helpless and lost and the help's not there. I've always been a stubborn kind of guy. I, that's how I used to be, but now I will accept help. Um, I do require help for my own struggles, but sometimes you've got to help yourself. People want things on a plate nowadays. Sometimes you've got to get up and go after your dreams. Sometimes you've got to have aspirations and like set realistic goals. If, if people can go through life in a happy state of mind and wake up one day and yeah, you may be having a, a shitty morning, put the kettle on, pour yourself a nice cup of, put something positive on the telly. Don't put the news on where it's all doom and gloom and try and just sit back and appreciate what you've got appreciate life because we only have one life we're born we die it's what we do in between what defines us whether people look at us and remember us and go hey or she was a good guy good girl or that person was a waste of oxygen you know you've got i'm not on this planet to please everyone as long as people who know me can think I'm a good person. That's all that matters to me. That's all that matters. And I think everyone should implement in that into their life. We're not here to appease everyone. People thrive on that. And are they really happy within their self? No, they're not. It's all materialistic nonsense. Um, I think when you need to be happy within yourself, keep a small group and if and then you can all work off each other's strengths and weaknesses if someone's having a shitty day you know grow some balls and ask them are you feeling okay are you all right P people should talk if you've got problems you know we've all we're all hurt it's how we deal with it I think you're living proof of that concept that, you know, we may not be responsible for the traumas that happened to us. It may not have been anything that we did that caused it, but it is still our responsibility to do the work to heal ourselves and to repair. And, you know, when we're in dark times and, and we are struggling, it is still our responsibility to find a way out. You know, whether that is reaching out or finding something that gives us purpose in that moment 
um, being grateful for something that just buys you another minute, you know, and sometimes we have to take things minute by minute or hour by hour or day by day. Well, yeah, years ago, I used to, I used to plan things in life. <laughs> and now I know in a blink of an eye, your life can change. One minute I was doing my job, next minute I was in an Indian prison. Yeah. So I take each day as it comes now. I still have goals. I still can look in a few days in advance and go, oh, I'm on my days off. I'm going to try and do this or I'm it. You know, I want to. That's realistic. Uh, but I live each day as it comes because it's just how my life is now. And I just, you know, sit sit back and sometimes just have a moment with myself and just go, you know what? Life's not too bad. It can have its horrible times, but you've got to think and look at the positive things, the good things, the good times. And you, you hear too many people being so negative and feel the world's against them. And I, I totally understand that. I've been the same. But you've got to think, you know what? It can always be worse. Well, what went with that, it wasn't personal. Like what happened to you wasn't personal. It, no, it wasn't anyone that they got hold of. So it wasn't that the world was against you or that they were it, against it, you. It could have happened to any other group of guys. It was it was a, a seizure exercise to make an example of us. It was gonna happen, it just happened to us, and I was involved in it, unfortunately. Um I'm not bitter. Um yeah, well, who wouldn't be angry? You've just lost four years of your life, but I'm taking that negative part of my life and hopefully trying to get positives out of it. If someone said to me seven seven year ago, right, Nick, this is what's going to happen in your life, and you're going to get a book to tell what a lot of people don't know what happened, I would have laughed at them and said, are you stupid? That's not going to happen. But it did. It did, because I've got it right here, and I've just read it. <laughs> And the thing is, like, I wasn't going to be doing a book. I had no plans of doing a book. I would have just done my present time, came home, and this, that, and the other. But when people are writing to us in prison saying, Nick, are you writing your memoirs down? You know you've got a story to be telling. Because we're not hearing a lot in the media. They're just going through the same thing to just yeah. raise awareness, really. You know? No one knows what's really going on and I just was like uh, uh, uh. and then I got back to the UK and I, I, I met some fantastic people who also helped along with the campaign process with my sister so negative positive I've got I've gone through a negative part of my life and I've met some fantastic people who I can now call as friends and I wouldn't have ever came across these people if I didn't go through some through negative in my life. So like I said to you earlier, doesn't matter how big or small this negative is, you'll always get a positive out of it if you look hard enough or have the patience enough. And I had four years of hell and I'm getting positives now. So hopefully my next four years in my life are positive and the years beyond that. Um, but like to do this book, 
it's been cathartic in a way. It's like getting things off my chest and letting people know who supported me, how I coped, how my family coped, what went on. Because people are interested. That's why I've done it. People are, were stopping us when I came home and saying, how are you settling in it, blah, blah. And I'm very approachable. I don't have a growl and snarl on my face to say, keep away, I don't want to talk. I'm very approached, approachable guy. And if people want to mention about it, I've got no problems, I will give people the time of day. And, you know, that's just the kind of laid back natured guy I am. Um, but it's like closing a chapter and then starting a new one. And people would say, after saying, hi, Nick, blah, blah. Nick, have you ever thought about doing a book? And so many people started doing that. And I just said to my sister, this this is happening. How do you go about doing it? So we just did a bit of, bit of good old Google search. We wrote, we wrote a bit of a, a lengthy synopsis, so to speak, up. And then we just started just putting feelers out. And people say, well, anyone can write a book. Yeah, anyone can write a book, but getting it published is not an easy task. Let, you, let me tell you that. It, I was ready to even chuck the towel in again. <laughs> and the amount of times I've been wanting to chuck the towel in in my life, but then something inside me goes, no, Nick, keep going. I wish I could just have that attitude. Why have I got to go, go to some limit of my mental capacity or <laughs> for something inside me to kick in to say, next level, Nick, keep going, don't give and in. That's where the growth happens. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> so, some people just give in in life. Me, I, I, I just don't know what being a quitter is. I'm, I'm not saying I'm special or anything like that, but I, it's just not in my nature to give in. Obviously, I'm, I'm being realistic here. I'm not going to uh, try and do things that I physically can't do. And I'm a, a big believer there's no such thing as can't. It's won't, but... You know, playing to your strengths. You don't necessarily exactly. I, I, I'm not going to turn around and say I can, I can climb to the summit of Mount Everest because what if I physically, medically, are unable to do? Mm -hmm. And that's happened with a lot of people. The altitude just they can't go no further. Yeah, and they've, they've wasted seventy grand to climb on top of a mountain. Oh my God, I know it's so expensive. It's crazy. You know. But uh, I can think of better. Uh, I know exactly, I know exactly what money. you mean, though. I know exactly. What you you play you, you play it your strengths, um, and yeah, I just uh, got in touch with some guys. Uh, they came up to uh, meet me. We had some food, drinks, shared a bit of my story, and I had them fixated. And they went, we like the sound of that. And it just spiraled out, uh, out of control in a good way. And we started do, going through the whole, let's put chapters together, let's 
talking through and the guy had a, a lot of patience because I'm going through old ground, a lot of it's upsetting. Yeah. And, and he's getting a lot of emotion from me when he's recording me um, to then do his uh, good uh, writing and stuff and helping get it all into chapters because I've, this is my story. He's just, I, I couldn't do, have done it without the team uh, that I've got, but he's he's put it into chapters and all that. And, and the way it's the book starts to then go back, it's like a, a somewhat of a, a biography. Uh, yeah, it is, yeah. it, it is um, like an autobiography. It, it, uh, what I like about it, now, I, I'm so glad that you actually decided to go ahead with it and push through with it and try and find someone to publish it because one, it's a really incredible and engaging story. It, it's one, like I said to you, it was like reading a fiction book. It wasn't like yeah. reading a true story, but then it was so, some parts of it were so crazy that you knew it, no one could make it up. Um, but I yeah. love that it gives us a good background about who you are, where you came from, your background. I'm just an ordinary the- guy. I'm not, I'm nothing special. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I well, think you are special, but I, it, you know, going into your background about the, you know, being, coming a paratrooper and really that mindset that you had that got you through that. Um, and whilst you were on your tours of Afghanistan and Iraq, um, and then you were able to, like, we get to know you better, like throughout that process. And then it, it gives you a, a better feel of, of what you were really going through when you were actually out in India. And I love the fact that throughout the entire book, it, your sister tells her point of view in it as well. So you, you actually get to go through the whole journey and experience with you, but then also catch snippets of what was happening at home with your family, yeah. what you were feeling and what they were going through. And it, it does give you that kind of like 360 degree view of what was happening. And, and I loved it because of that. It was great. And I, I'm a few, a few people have said that as well. Um, with your uh, sister's injection, it, it really brings the story more to light. It adds another really when it, it does. It adds a bit more of a different insight to thing. It's not just me rambling on about me, 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 what happened to me. This just this just didn't affect me. This yeah. affected my family. So you're getting like you refer to as the 360. And and when people have been giving me feedback and it's been great feedback and I'm I can now hand on my heart, yeah, I'm a little bit proud of mm-hmm. doing this. It's not something that I ever imagined doing years ago, but like I say, when things happen in your life, you go down different paths and some are for the better and some are for the even better. And uh, I've got, I, I, I can say I'm really proud of, of what's happened. And at the end of the day, it, it's, it's down to the, those who supported me. This is the book for them. They wanted to know what really happened because there were, generally interested and really hard done by seeing a, a family being ripped apart but brought together 
in unity in in a bad situation we all had the effects it wasn't just me my family suffered um you could say my sister suffered more than me on what she had to deal with back here in the uk she had to deal with me being in india dealing with the media dealing with the government dealing with me ill mom putting her life on hold to so if anyone deserves a medal it's me sister i mean lisa does sound like an incredibly strong woman but it sounds to me like that that's a family trait that comes all the way down from you know your mom your dad right the way throughout and you know i can't thank you enough for coming on and speaking to me about your book and about your experiences you are special like what you've been through is very unique and well, it's never ever going to happen again, that's yeah. for sure. Well, exactly that. And I actually can't wait to see what you do next in the future. I, I really believe that it's going to be bright for you. And I can only implore people to, to go and read your book. It's called Surviving Hell. We are giving away a free signed copy to... Uh, a special guest, a special listener, sorry, will be running a competition. So check out my Instagram feed, the Blonde Strong podcast Instagram feed for that. Um, but I just want to thank you again for taking the time to speak to me. It's been incredible actually getting to meet you face to face, although it's still online with all this COVID lockdown nonsense, but it's been wonderful. So thank you so much. No problem. Um, during, during this lockdown, um, I know things is a lot less restricted now, um, but well, let's go back to the early days. Um, it was annoying, uh, really annoying, because one minute you're, you're just getting on with your life and next minute you're being told, batten down the hatches, basically. Don't but leave you're flashbacks. <laughs> well, I, I didn't really have flashbacks. I just thought, yeah, we'll go again. <laughs> at least, I, at least, I, at least, I've, at least, I, uh, I'm in a, a better situation this time. I can binge Netflix till my eyes bleed. Yeah. I can, <laughs> I can literally pick up a phone and ring my family, which I couldn't do when yeah. I was in prison. I can video call my family. Um. My my mum's came on leaps and bounds in seven years. She doesn't require my sister to help her video call. She physically can do it herself. So that is something small, but after going through a double aneurysm and having to relearn everything, that is a massive, massive achievement for her. And it, it's morale for me as well. And it takes a little bit of strain off my sister as well. But um, dealing with the lockdown, yes, it was bored, boredom. Obviously, I've worked throughout, so um, I've been very grateful for that. But a lot of people have suffered. Um, those with mental health, uh, especially those with anxiety. Is. So um, I've always 
whether I've gone on Facebook Live, I've always kind of touched up on that and said, look, if, you, if anyone is and has been struggling in lockdown, please feel free to get in touch. And I will try my best to share what I went through in my lockdown and how I cope with what I had to go through and hopefully share that with them and hopefully they can implement it in their lockdown and hopefully not see their home as a prison as quite a, a few people have i'm thinking you, you you've got to appreciate what you have got to what i didn't have and how i coped so I'm, i i i hope a, a message or a, something can f come from uh, this podcast to others who may are struggling in their life and I just want to say that you know if you are struggling don't be silent don't feel you're helpless and alone there is people there to help and I'm one of them and uh, my door is always open um, I'm probably going to get potentially bombarded with messages now but no on, on a real on a realistic note yeah never feel alone no we, we all we all go through struggles and hardship in our time it's how we deal and cope with it i'm not going to say for one second i'm the same person as i was in 2013. i a couple of days ago felt lower than ever i had suicidal thoughts in my head i wanted to throw that towel in however the towel keeps getting thrown back to me. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. Um, or a curse or God knows what. But I kind of had something to look forward to. I had my hair finally getting cut, the gym's reopening and this podcast to do. So I had me little negative moments, but positivity on the back of it. Some people need to see that positivity they need to look in that negative to get the positivity out don't give in never give in in life well i feel that's like that's the perfect note to end on because you you know you have been a real inspiration nick and that is the whole point of this podcast is to really um get inspirational guests on to help empower other people and help them find some hope in their situation because like you said we're not alone we are stronger together reach out um your dms are open mine are open i will put all of your uh instagram and contact details on there uh in the description of the podcast no people can connect with you that way um Please, anyone listening, I do urge you to read the book. It was wonderful. I absolutely loved it. It is the perfect lockdown mindset book because it gives you a real insight into whatever freedoms and liberties you think you're having taken away from you at the moment. They aren't anything. Just put your mask on and get on with your life. Like, because you could have actual real freedoms taken away from you and be locked up for four and a half years. So, um, you know, on that note, I just want to thank everyone for taking the time to listen. Nick, thank you so much for joining me. It's been such a pleasure having you. Um, please don't forget no to like, follow, subscribe, share with anyone, and keep your eyes open on Instagram 
um, and Twitter and LinkedIn and everything else where I'll be putting details about how to win your own uh, signed copy of Surviving Hell. So until next time, take care.